This week on Dig Me Out, Tim and Jay are joined by Eric Grubbs, author of Post, a look at the influence of post-hardcore 1985-2007. To revisit the album, Do You Know Who You Are? by Texas Is The Reason. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host, Tim Minichi, and joining me for episode 146, my co-host, Jason Ziak. Jay, we are back, unbelievably, for the 146th week in a row. I know, it's crazy, isn't it? It And um, we are joined by a guest this week. And uh, continuing our, our, you know, this year we've had on uh, some musicians, but we've also had some unique contributors um, joining us. We've had uh, Mr. Uh, Gavin Reed and, and Mr. David Gorgos, who are, are uh, multiple donators and uh, brought a lot of interesting music for us to check out. But this week we have a frequent commenter and <laughs> an author of a book that I thoroughly enjoyed. Uh, it's called Post, a look at the influence of post-hardcore 1985 to 2007. And his name is Mr. Eric Grubbs. He's joining us from uh, the home of uh, what will be a important point in this uh, discussion, Dallas, Texas. Eric, how are you doing this evening? Yes. Doing well. Glad to, have, glad to be on here with you guys. Well, we appreciate you uh, coming on the Skype and, uh, and uh, joining us. So I mentioned... Um, you're in Dallas, and you are bringing to us a band that mm-hmm. uh, has some relevance to that city in an in a odd way, um, and that yeah. is Texas is the reason is the name of the band that we're gonna we're gonna check out, and um, yeah. the reason why we we'll just get to it up front is that uh, there's a Misfits song, and there uh, I don't know the name of the song actually, but there's a lyric that says Boy. Texas. Okay, that's right. Texas is yeah. the reason that the president's dead. And that's their mm-hmm. reference to JFK, who was, of course, uh, mm-hmm. killed. In, gunned, uh, down, gunned down 50 years ago this year. Wow. Wow. I feel old. <laughs> and uh, so you had you suggested this band for us. Um, Jay and I were not familiar. So can you want... You know, normally this is where we'd pop in some history of the band. Would you mind regaling us with a little history of Texas is the Reason, if you if you so desire? Sure. sure. So Texas is the Reason formed in 1994 uh, by drummer Chris Daly, Scott Weingard, and a guitarist then known as Norman Arenas. Uh, years later, he would change his name, his last name, to Brannon. Uh, just due to the fact that there was a lot of, well, a lot of bad association with the Arenas name. So he just picked the name out of the census and just went with that. And so he's been Norman Brandon for about eight or nine years at this point. So the band formed, and while they had all played in fast, hardcore bands, very much about uh, Hare Krishna and Straight Edge, they decided to go with a style of music that they were really moved by at the time. And it's kind of this triumvirate of quicksand, sunny day real estate, and British music, especially the Burr and, and, and later Oasis and Suede. So they form, and they are looking for a singer. And at that time, there was a band called Copper, and they had kicked their bass player out named Derek Kwan. And Garrett was asked to sing and play guitar for the band. So the band forms. They record, now this, this is all in New York City, mind you. They record a three-song demo, and that demo is later released as their first EP. And Jay Robbins of Jawbox fame, and who's produced a number of records that y'all have spotlighted on, on digging out, Mm-hmm. including a recent one, The Discernment Plans Emergency and High. And they recorded uh, Do You Know Who You Are, their full-length album, which had nine songs on it. They recorded that at Oz Studio, the same place that Jawbox recorded for your own special sweetheart. And I believe Shudder to Think had also recorded at uh, their Pony Express record there. So 
they re record this album, and uh, they even before this record comes out, they're getting a lot of major label interest, given the fact that New York is was at the you know, and still is an industry town. And so the band is, uh, they're being pursued by major labels at, at this time. And, well, they decide to go on a lot of tours. And before they signed with Capitol Records, the band decided to break up. And that was 1997. And the band would later reunite, I believe, in 2006. And then they reunited again this year to pr help promote uh, the, I'd say the proper burial of the band, as in they were able to put their entire discography w uh, onto one CD or a, a two LP set. And the, there are 16 tracks, um, two are the same song, but it's two different versions of it. So we're talking about a band that had a 15 song discography but in my opinion there are no bad songs on it but um now i wanted to focus more on the nine songs that make up uh, mm -hmm. do you know who you are and that's uh, the history of the band awesome and of course uh if you want to suggest a band for review such as uh, texas is the reason although you won't be able to suggest anything else besides texas is the reason since this is their only album uh, you can visit our request review page at digmeoutpodcast.com. Uh, and now now is the time when we, we focus on our Facebook feedback. We got uh, quite a bit on this record. <laughs> um, Scott Russell Helgram said, Schwing kind of randomly walked into this 2010 after a friend gave me one of their CDs. The songs are hand down amazing. The production is a little too thin. Tom Mullen, a recent uh, guest of our show from the Washed Up Emo podcast and blog, Yes. He says podcast. this is a uh, yeah definitely washed up emo blog approved. This record was the bridge <laughs> for many from hardcore into post hardcore into in indie. They could play with a hardcore band and then play with a quieter band. They hit it just the right time. And then there was some more stuff there, but I got cut off when I copied it over to my page. So I don't have it. anyway, uh, <laughs> Scott Wyman says yes, yes, yes. This is perfect. Even simply overhearing people talk about this record makes me feel good again. Thank you. Michael Rudick, incredible record. When I first heard it as a 15-year-old in 2003 and just as incredible today, I feel old. He was 15 in 2003. <laughs> uh, Ian Risbon, agree with Tom. This record helped pave a new sound. Uh, and then, of course, you chimed in. You had stuff to say about this record a lot. We'll be looking forward to that. And then Scott uh, Helgram chimed in once again. The snare sound on this is tighter than my anus. Uh, I don't know how he would know what his anus sounds like as compared to a snare, but that's an interesting discussion for another podcast. Right. So, we are going to review the nine songs that make up the original album and go over those tracks. We might touch on some of the other songs that were uh, released, but I think uh, we can stick to the nine. And I have to say, I, I want to say, first off, Thank you to Texas for, is the reason for releasing a nine-song album in 1996. That is a, <laughs> a praiseworthy achievement. They could have gone with a 15-song album if they had chosen to, but they went with nine songs, and, and they are better men for it. Uh, now the actual record. Jay and I are not familiar with this record, and uh, I think uh, I started the last discussion, Jay, so I'm going to put this one on you. Tell us, Texas is the reason. Hmm. What, what, what are, you, what are your reasons for liking or disliking this album? Well, I'm going to keep my review brief because because my overall feeling is that um, it's a record you need to spend time with, and I think the more I've listened to it, the more I've liked it. Um, I kind of didn't know how to take it the first couple of listens. Um, you know, the first track uh, is a guitar riff, and it's almost like, now bear with me, it's almost like you're listening to a Jim Satriani record. <laughs> Joe Satriani, all right. Really crisp drum sound. It just sounds like hyper produced, and I'm like, where is this going? And then obviously the song unfolds, and it, you know the vocal comes in. And you're like, okay, hmm. you know, I'm, that song kind of left me a little lost. Yeah. 
as you get a little bit into the record, um, say talk, uh, tracks two, three, four, things start to get thicker and chunkier and more layered and more. You can start to hear some of the Sunny Day stuff come through, and you can hear some of the you know tuned down riffs, you know drop D riffs, and um, the vocal starts to make more sense, particularly in the you know some of the choruses and bridges. They start to introduce backup vocals and counter melodies and it starts to meld together a little bit more for me there the middle of the record it's okay as far as five and six um in terms of like you know six is kind of just an instrumental quiet picking thing five is an interesting song in that it's uh you know it's this borderline power pop in the verse because there's this really upbeat bass line that kind of everything based is based on and the vocal melodies um, you know, kind of uh, uh, more upbeat for the rest of the record. But then it goes into this really weird choice for a chorus. It's kind of a back and forth between halftime. And I, and I kind of noticed that as they got to that chorus and I was breaking the song down, I found myself thinking, well, geez, how are they going to get back to this verse because it's so different? And they basically had to, it's kind of interesting from a musician's standpoint, they kind of have to like break the whole chorus down at the end of it like dismantle the whole thing and like kind of go quiet and then bring the verse back again. Cause like the two parts are so different. Mm-hmm. Like you couldn't just shift back to the verse. That song was like, ah, there's parts of it I liked. And then other parts where it was like, ah, I'm not quite sure. But I think the re- the end of the record is really strong. Um, back into the left. I really like the, uh, it reminded me a little bit of like a seaweed kind of vibe where it's, you know, got a, a faster kind of punk energy to it. Um, the vocal is, uh, I think one of the better vocals on the record in terms of it, it has a lot of uh, range to it. Good melodies, just has a good energy overall. Um, and then the last couple songs had me thinking of uh, you know, bands like Hum and Curb Dog in terms of um, they're fairly epic in that you know they got the big open uh, heavy chords, a little bit of the dissonance here and there, um, some pretty good vocals, a lot of shifts and swings. Um, I like the drummer on this record quite a bit, although I, I, I'm a little bit on the fence about the drum sound, but I do like the drum parts quite a bit. Um, fairly busy from a drum standpoint, but I think it really helps um, bring a lot of personality and interest to, to a lot of the stuff. So, you know, I mean, overall, the more I'm listening to it, the more I'm liking it, the more I'm hearing um, the nuances and the sort of the melodies and and. and and hooky pieces of either the guitar riffs or the vocals that I think at the first couple listens are they don't jump out at you, but you kind of they, they kind of stick with you over time. So that's where I'm at on it. I have a lot of the same feelings as you. Uh, it, I think the it, it it's grown on me the more I've listened to it, and the more I've listened to it, not in the car but with headphones on, and able mm-hmm. I'm able to hear everything that's going on in a very intimate way. Uh, it's it's definitely like a, showing me a lot of more colors than I was hearing originally. And the one negative that was brought up is the production. And I do agree that sometimes the production does come across as a little thin and it betrays, you know, what they're doing musically. But like you said, the, you know, from the guitar playing to the drumming, you know, it's completely from listening to a lot of bands in this genre expected what they're doing i'm not like saying oh this is completely on you know original and i've never heard anything like this before like yeah this sounds like what i would expect based on reading reviews of this band to sound like but they're doing so many different things in so crisp and in such a i don't know i want to say perfect way but like they hit exactly where i when i'm expecting a change to happen it happens and it's not in a predictable way, but it's just like, yeah, that's where I needed the change to happen. I was getting, like, this part was getting a little long. And they take some chances, like, in terms of how they structure songs. Johnny on the Spot, the lead song, does not have sort of a traditional structure to it. Mm-hmm. You know, he starts to sing a verse, but it's like a really short verse, and then they change the tempo, and... They play the first chorus, and he doesn't sing. Yeah. So it's... Like, what the hell's going on? And then he sings the second time. <laughs> Yeah, they, they they take some chances with that, and I and I really like bands that are, are willing to stay within what is essentially a pop format, but 
sort of twists and turns that you're not expecting that keep you keep you interested. And the one thing you know, you mentioned Eric in the in the lead up that this is a band that has influences that go from Oasis to Sunny Day Real Estate. I was actually hearing more bands like, dare I say, Pearl Jam or or Smashing Pumpkins because of their willingness to write kind of ballady kind of stuff that like mm-hmm. you know Eddie Vedder would croon over or or some of the more introspective and and you know emoish moments of of smashing pumpkins like mayonnaise or something like that oh yeah uh yeah, Soma. And, yeah exactly and this they're not afraid to go for that big emotional hook um mm-hmm. which I think bands of a lot of bands of this ilk, they do it more in the, I say the like the guttural uptempo yelling, and there this band is more willing to slow it down and and uh, play with the uh, uh, more deliberate and um, reduced tempos, and I I appreciated that. I like especially towards Jay. You mentioned the end of the record. Um, it's a really like a lot of bands would kind of blow the end of the record but they really nail the end of the record um from back to the left to the day's refrain which kind of starts out as a as a mid-tempo song and then they start bringing it up at the end of the song which is really cool and then uh a jack with one eye has like you said like that hum big thick ending guitar part sort of a repetitive circular riff that just kind of keeps going back around and i, I really dug that Yeah, and I'm still picking things out as I listen to this record. So um, <laughs> it's it's really, really interesting. So, Eric, you said you had a, a lot of things to contribute. I'd like to hear um, your thoughts on this record. Sure. Um, let me just give you a funny little story of how I even found out about Texas for the reason before I really dissect the record. Okay. Um, I worked at a Best Buy in uh, suburban Houston in the late 90s, essentially at the last kind of bastion of the CD sales. I mean, I stocked a lot of Titanic soundtracks, Celine Dion, Let's Talk About Love, and Drebo Celli, Sarah Brightman. <laughs> but, but at the time, I was really getting into pop punk, ska punk, but also hearing, kept hearing about emo. And I was already a Sunday Day Real Estate fan by then. And here I am working at Best Buy, and in came in the... Texas is the reason EP. And I just looked at it and everything about it said, this is an emo record and I will like this. <laughs> and, and with my employee discount, I think I got it for three or $4. And so I bought it, came home and I was not let down whatsoever. And the following week, I believe uh, do you know who you are came in that shipment and I bought that immediately and have loved it ever since. I would have to say why I love this record is that it is not just one move. Um, when it's really slow and somber, it's not that too long. Um, and so it doesn't drag and there really isn't one tempo that sums up Texas is the reason. I think we can all mention bands with we can say a tempo and that's that band um with with texas it's very much like it's all over the place but it, it feels very cohesive and frankly it was not until earlier this year when i part i started to put two and two to two and two and three together 
that it was like, yeah, I can really hear a quicksand influence on this. I can really hear a sunny day real estate influence on this. And with uh, Garrett's phrasing and the way he sings, it's very similar to how a lot of British singers of the early to mid-90s sang. And it, it just sounds as vital today as it did back then. I know I've said that before in comments. I know that's a very cliche phrase, but I think what really helps with that recording, whatever y'all feel about um, the, re the recording sound of it, is that it, when it was released in 1996, it was mastered really well. Now, hold on a sec, let me just, okay, so Revelation Records put out that record. Now, mm -hmm. Revelation, Equal Vision, these were labels, along with Victory Records, these were labels that put out hardcore, um, stuff that it, by the mid 90s it was more of like what quicksand was doing along with punk stuff but the, the thing that's unfortunately very sad about those records is that you take say an amazing band like snapcase and their first couple of records sound so flat and thin on cd today um now they would go on in the case of snapcase they would go on to make incredible records that still sound phenomenal like progression through learning and design for automotion Anyway, but what's interesting about how Do You Know Who You Are is mastered is that um, they actually got an A&R guy to pay for some very good mastering uh, as a way to possibly sign with the label that he or she was with. So that, that was, so that, that's, that's the reason why it's like, oh, the, the mastering level is, was really good and hmm. has remained good. And that when they reissued it this year, I really can't tell that much of a difference um, with those nine tracks. Now, with the songs that were originally on the three-song EP, they sound a whole lot better on the reissue. You know, it, it's it's a record that sounds like guys that are in their early to mid-20s talking about stuff that, well, frankly, you don't have to be 20 to 25 to relate to. Um, and that's... That, is something that I really strive to bring up frequently in my book is that while at the time I was writing it, uh, Fall Out Boy and My Chemical Romance were some of the big bands, and it seemed like those records were really only for teenagers. Whereas for me, Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Smashing Pumpkins, and all the emo stuff that I really loved back then and still love, is that it's it's just more about like for for people that are just going through a lot of introspective times and that can happen when you're 15 that can happen when you're 35 and that can happen when you're 65 and right. there's there's a lot more to this band with Texas is the reason than just some songs and you know people clap along and they and they love to hear it when they have their favorite song played. Um, so it again, no one tempo, no one mood, but it all just works, and I think it flows so well, especially having the instrumental track in the middle of it, you know, the title track, and then it kicks into a, a really raging rock song, probably the biggest raging rock song on the record, and um, it's it's not a long record and it's not a short record, um, and I would have to say that when they added the extra tracks with the reissue, I mean, they just really sweetened the deal, um, including two, two quote-unquote new songs, but they were uh, songs that they were, they had written for their, what would be their second record, but they broke up instead, but they had never recorded these songs. They had played them on their reunion shows, and so they recorded with Jay Robbins again, and uh, it, it, it was great. Now, of course, the big thing about Texas is the Reason is a bunch of people would like to think of well, what could have been? I don't, I don't really think too much about that. It's more of like, you know who you are is an amazing document, and I don't know if the band could ever top it. I was going to ask about that because I, I wonder if part of the, I guess, allure or or, uh, or or part of the magic with this band is that they're 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 a one hit wonder. They have an interesting story in that they they were about to sign to a major label. And they were playing a show. I think it was over in London. And they said basically, if we have a really good show tonight, we're we're 
done. We're quitting. Like, we're going to go out on a high <laughs> note. Which is funny to think if they yeah. had played a bad show, they would have been on Capitol Records the next day. Uh, yeah. But they played, you know, they played an amazing show. I mean, it was Germany. I'm not, I can't remember exactly. But it was somewhere in yeah, Europe. Yeah. Their, their last show when they were first together was in Germany. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they had 400 I'm not the band Germans. Historian. I just... I just right. uh, I just read a lot. <laughs> gotcha. So I, I wonder if part of the mystique is that this is a band that has an interesting backstory and called it quits before they made a bad second record or a mediocre second mm-hmm. record. And because mm-hmm. they only have this lone... I mean, it's the same thing with like, you know, for a long time you had one Jeff Buckley record. Right. And that was and that was all we had to go on. So that that record became elevated because of that. Um, sure. Since then, there's been you know a billion Jeff Buckley rarities compilations, and you know I think there's only been about four. <laughs> I guess the rest of them in live albums. Um, oh yeah, the live albums just never seem to stop. <laughs> no, <laughs> he's he played he played a lot of live shows that got recorded. Yeah. Um, but is there is there something to that that we we affix um, a bit more uh, appreciation to a band that has a mystique about them and say, you know, this is special, not just because of the music, but because of who they were and, and what they stood for and, and, you know, their backstory. I think with Texas is the reason if they kept making records, um, that, that you know who you are would still be great because comparing them to bands that were around at the same time uh, they had a much more striking sound now I'm about to say something that will probably be very unpopular to hear uh, but as as someone that enjoys mineral and enjoys Christy front drive I have never been able to sink my teeth into them because to me they sound a little too much like Sunday Day Real Estate. Whereas with Texas is the Reason, it's, the comparison is more cosmetic than anything else. And um, it, 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 it's just, if they, if they kept making records, I think they, I, I don't know. Uh, but it, it's kind of the syndrome that a lot of bands who make great debut albums have. It's like, it'll always be compared to the first. And um, I don't really sit around and wonder too much about, well, what could have been? What if they played more shows? What if they worked it out? And um, I'm glad that they got back together on friendly terms and they broke up still friends. Because at the end of the day, I think for people that don't play in bands, they might not really understand that there's a lot more to it than just playing with your friends. And when you play music with people that are your friends, uh, certain sides of one's personality can come out, and you didn't realize that that, pers- that side of that personality came out. And, you know, friendships can be tarnished that way. And uh, it, I think it's great that all four of them are on speaking terms, and they they didn't they didn't do this, these reunion tours as cash grabs or anything. It was it was a it was a genuine, sincere way of saying goodbye. We don't know that they could be rich from those those tours. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, all of them have gone on to have very, you know, have their own successful lives. Uh, Norman, who was a high school dropout, now teaches writing at a public university in New York. Uh, Scott Weingard is a, a very well-renowned chef, and Chris Bailey would go on to play in Jets Brazil and. And he still plays around here and there, and the family man, and and Garrett still sounds great as a singer. So I mean, and all these guys would go on to play in other great bands like New End Original. Uh, Norman played in Gratitude for a while. He even auditioned for the Foo Fighters uh, when uh, they were when Franz Stahl had been kicked out of the band. And uh, but he, he's glad that it worked out that he ended up not in the in the band. So. Of course, Franz Stahl, uh, formerly of uh, Wool. Scream. Scream. Yeah. Well, no, he was also in Wool, right? Yes, yes, he was. Which we covered on, like, episode one of Dig Me yeah, Out. That was, <laughs> that was, it was literally episode one. So, taking it all back. 
Now, Jay, I have a t- I have a question for you because you're a drummer. I noticed, and I don't know if this is particular to the genre, but when I hear the tempo changes, uh, that, you know, that, that are very typical of of post hardcore and emo, where you'll be playing in, in regular time, and then boom, you're going to halftime or something like that. If a lot of rock bands would throw in a drum fill to to transition from one part to the other, but it seems like a lot of bands in this particular genre don't do that. Um, can you give me any drumming insight into why that is? <laughs> can you can you conjure your drummer uh, knowledge? Uh, uh, Tim, I got to break in and say I'm also a drummer. <laughs> oh, okay. Maybe Eric can explain this better than me. I mean, you're right. I mean, the the the, the parts that would be, I guess you would think of as fills or accents are actually usually more incorporated into the the main parts. Mm-hmm. Um, I noticed that on this record, it's, it's kind of what, for me, what saves some of the verses, particularly some of the, you know, where the, um, you know, a couple songs where there's like a, like a, just a picking part, you know, might be cleaner, kind of drags a little bit, but the drum part will be interesting because they'll introduce some, a Tom thing or kind of like an off time, you know, underbelly of a rhythm that kind of accents that, that uh, picking part. So, yeah, I, I mean, I actually... It'd be interesting to re-listen to it, but yeah, I think you're onto something there in terms of the fill. What do you think, Eric? I would have to say that Chris plays the right amount of being a busy drummer and a simple mm-hmm. drummer, and it, it amazes me that the times that there are tempo shifts, that they're major tempo shifts, but he makes them sound like very subtle. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, for me, like his timing is great. I mean, I, I've seen him play with Jets Brazil, and, and he, he just he just knew how to lay back and then jump in with mm-hmm. something busy and uh and this is this might sound like simple music to play but uh with almost any style of music when you sit down and try and play it correctly on the drums because mm-hmm. it all starts with the drums everybody um <laughs> if if it's just off and it, it, it's like this is music that could easily you could speed up or want to get really flashy with it he does it right and what's interesting is that chris you know, came from a background of playing really fast music. Oh, that's so. right, because he was in a it was in a hardcore band before this. Yeah, he he was in 108. Um, yeah, a, a lot of a lot of hardcore bands. <laughs> and it seems like a lot of the uh, you know, and I, I this is typical of the genre, I guess, but a lot of uh, people who played in post-hardcore bands um, and started out in an actual hardcore band um, mm-hmm. and then sort of like whether it was through maturity or just being influenced by something different sort of with their next band got into slower tempos more introspective lyrics and mm-hmm. we're you know exploring that space more so um yeah yeah there was there was definitely a cycle that happened in the mid 80s it happened again in the early 90s, happened again in the mid-90s, and it was this. It was with Straight Edge, with the original hardcore, I mean, we're talking like Minor Threat, DYS, SSD, when it became more about what your message was and what you stood for over the, the quality of music, People wanted to break free of that and just express a lot of their their angst of, of what they were going through. And the, it, it, it's, it's happened plenty of times before. It, it was something that drew me into it in 1997 because of the fact that I briefly identified myself as straight edge. I didn't put big X's on my hands or anything or shave my head or go get gap clothing or camouflage clothing and go beat up people at shows that were smoking or drinking. It was just more of a matter of like, I don't really care whether you smoke or not. I don't care if you drink or not. I just want to listen to music that I really relate to. And that's where the post-hardcore word kind of comes from is this like, what do you do after you get into hardcore and you get all your anger out through one way and through kind of a narrow way and you want to express it in a, in a different way. And Quicksand was definitely a band that led a lot of people away from playing fast and crazy. 
um, because of the fact that Walter Schreifels had been in Youth of Today as well as Gorilla Biscuits. And then you listen to the first Quicksand record, and it sounds nothing like what he had done before. I mean, here it is, drop detuned and and slower tempos, a lot of atonal stuff. And that's, that's what a lot of people were attracted to. And for me, being somebody that really liked pop punk while also liking grunge, surprisingly, Smashing Pumpkins really led the way for me to get into quieter music that also had a good rock edge to it. You have a lot of the deep cuts on Siamese Dream as well as Melancholy and Infinite Sadness that have that vibe. So when I had first heard about what emo was and some friends of mine said, oh, Jimmy, world, God, they're so emo. Um, I listened to it and I loved it because it reminded me of Smashing Pumpkins. Yeah. And years. what's funny is that one year after a couple of pop punk friends of mine said that, oh God, emo's slow and anticlimactic, all this jazzy drumming and kids cry at the shows. I ran into one of those guys and he told me about how much he loved the Get Up Kids. <laughs> <laughs> so, and it's yeah. funny because lyrically, Smashing Pumpkins are way more emo than this band, than Texas is the reason. I, I mean, I read through his lyrics and yeah. while they're I guess you've used the word, we've used the word introspective. It's not, you know, crying on my sleeve stuff. I mean, they're just, right. you know, expressions of what do you, you know, various emotions and stuff like that. But it's not what I would describe as what you're saying, like crying at show emo type stuff. Mm-hmm. It's, it's definitely <laughs> not that far. He's, he's, he's much more vague than that. And a lot of the songs yeah. are not even really wordy. Like they're, they're just a couple of lines and mm-hmm. he's, he doesn't get too specific with anything, and um, yeah, I think I think Pumpkins yeah. are kind of like the hidden emo band of the '90s that uh, <laughs> nobody really wants to uh, recognize. Oh man, if I put that in that top twenty emos uh, emo albums list, man, we would have been murdered in the comments section. <laughs> By the way, if, you, if y'all hadn't seen the LA Weekly Times, I contributed to a top 20 emo albums list. And I did write about Do You Know Who You Are. And I completely stand by all the records that I nominated and I wrote about. But what's been interesting is seeing how uh, different age ranges, how they got into emo. It's like if you talk to people, I'm 34, you talk to people that are 10 years older than me, they'll be like, where's Nation of Ulysses? Where's Circus Lupus? And then if you talk to people that are 10 years younger than me, there might be, why isn't there a dashboard confessional? And I was just like, look, we're just presenting a list, not the list. <laughs> and, 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 and that's also what I was trying to do with my book, is that I wasn't really trying to write a, a history of emo. Um, I was just trying to do a better job than Andy Greenwald did with his book, which I don't know if y'all have read it, but it's it's... I'm going to put it nicely. It's pretty superficial. And for people like myself that were really moved by this music when we were in high school and college, seeing this guy who was an outsider and is still an outsider be thought of as like this guy that knows what he's talking about, frankly, that book is an insult. So this was at least my attempt to explain things in a very deep and personal way. Um, you know, we all approach from it from different perspectives. I don't hate Andy Greenwald. I've never spoken to him. I've heard him be interviewed. He's a very genuine, sincere guy. That's but not how I'm going to edit not, this. I'm going to totally edit yeah. that you just said I hate Andy Greenwald. I, I don't hate Andy Greenwald. <laughs> I'm taking the don't out. <laughs> I don't hate him. I don't hate him. Um, it, it's, it's just more a matter of he had written this book, and I had heard some not-so-positive things about it online. And I had reached a point in my life where I wasn't really doing much. All I was doing was working. And strangely enough, it took a pile of shingles that fell off the roof of my place. They were working on uh, my apartment complex on the, on the first day of March 2004. This pile of shingles hit my head accidentally. And it just kind of knocked me for a loop. And about 30 minutes later, I'm driving into work. And I was like, 
well, why don't I try to write a book about it in, in the style of uh, Michael Azarad's Our Band Could Be Your Life? And the whole nature of these bands, including Texas is the Reason, is do it yourself. You know, don't wait on other people to do something that you could possibly do. Exactly. Um, so it's, it's um, you know, it, it took three and a half years of my life to do it, but I don't regret it. It, it was a great thing. And um, I would much, I would feel much happier that, well, I do feel much happier that I did something about it instead of sit at home and complain about it anonymously on on the internet. You could have tweeted um, about it. Yeah. <laughs> over and over. No, 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 no. You could have started a, mean, a Twitter feed just bashing uh, Andy's book. <laughs> I actually wrote some pretty sharp words about his book a few years ago on my blog. But and I still stand behind him. It's just more of a matter of like, look, he's got his perspective. All I'm trying to do is present another perspective. And when I interviewed some of the people that were featured in his book, but he didn't interview them, they were not happy about that book whatsoever. And um, in, including the Promise Ring guys, they weren't too happy that the name of his book was the name of probably one of their biggest records. And um, you know, he didn't interview them. Um, he he just interviewed a few people, and that was it. And then he started having these these online conversations with people. And he hangs out with Jimmy World and right and hangs out with Dashboard Confessional. And it that's a book. You know, it's a, well, it's an outsider's perspective, but nobody has really stepped up and tried to write a definitive history of emo. So what I tried to do was just explain the differences between post-hardcore and emo. And so there's a blend of both. And uh, with with Texas is the Reason, there's definitely a blend of both. There's the emo-ish side of them, there's the post-hardcore side of them, then there's the indie rock side of them. Because you got to understand, before I heard the word emo, post-hardcore, I just thought of it as sad indie rock. <laughs> especially especially Sunny Day Real Estate. The reason why I got into Sunny Day Real Estate is that the rhythm section went on to go play in the Foo Fighters, even though they didn't play on the first record, but I didn't know that at the time. And just a band named Sunny Day Real Estate, that sounds a whole lot different than Earth Crisis. Um, so there's a lot of peculiar things about them that I wanted to know. And that was something that I really got to find out even more when I, I wrote my book. It was very surreal to ask Nate Mendel on the phone, where did you get the name Sunny Day Real Estate? And he just told me, oh, it was a talking head song, nothing but flowers. I just thought of in the future, what if they sold Sunny Days through a real estate office? I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> and, and another thing about these, these bands is like their names. You know, we talked earlier about the name Texas is the reason. You know, that doesn't sound like they stand for really anything other than they just want to express themselves. When you find out that, oh, it's it's from a Misfits lyric, then it's like, no, oh, that's, that's kind of cool. So, but it, 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 I don't really associate it with that. So, And uh, the album title is Do You Know Who You Are, which is reportedly the last thing that John Lennon heard before he died. Yes. So it, right. it's another assassination uh, relationship with the, with the words. Track two yeah. is Magic Bullet Theory. And track two is Magic Bullet Theory. And track seven is Back into the Left, which is famously repeated over and over again in the movie JFK uh, mm-hmm. about the Kennedy assassination. Jack with one eye is from uh, Twin Peaks. Yes. I don't know. Is anybody assassinated uh, in Twin Peaks? Well, Laura Palmer. Um, no. Well, it, it seemed like a lot of the song titles coincidentally draw back to tragic moments in history. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just more of like, they, they like to come up with creative titles, which is cool. And um, that's, that's something that, frankly, helps it be a little bit more timeless than thinking about Straight Edge. <laughs> right. What do, you, what? what do you guys tell me about tracks 10 and 11 on the extended complete con- collection version? Because those songs sound sure. different to me. What's going on there? Yeah. 
those were recorded in the last year or so. Okay. Um, and obviously, Garrett doesn't sing as high as he used to. And those were the two songs that they had written for their second album, but they never got around to recording. Okay. So, are, um, I really, I really liked, uh, I liked those songs quite a bit, and they sounded kind of uh, demo-ish, and the vocal was definitely different, um, and the production mm -hmm. was different. So, yeah, uh, yeah, would have been a cool record then if that was the direction they were going. Sure. Yeah. What's interesting with the uh, um, Texas is the reason is that you can count on one hand how many releases they originally put out. They had put out the EP, they had put out a split 7-inch with Promise Ring, they put out, I believe, self-titled 7-inch, and Do You Know Who You Are? And that's it. <laughs> that's, a, that's what we call brief. That's a brief output. <laughs> and that's all in the yeah, span of like two years. Yeah. And, and, and something I'll also add uh, is that Texas is a reason isn't really talked about that much in my book, and there's a reason why. Um, for me, I wanted to write entire chapters devoted to a band that had a very pronounced beginning, middle, and end. So the last thing I wanted to read was a band chapter after band chapter that had that same kind of narrative arc. No offense to Simon Reynolds. I really respect who he is and his books are great references but for me as a reader it was really hard to get into rip it up start again because there were so many of the same narrative ups and downs band sees sex pistols play or you know say curse words on on bill grundy's show they form a band they don't sound like the sex pistols they're called pop punk they release this amazing seven inch and then they put out a full length and then they Something screws over the band, and they're never the same. Reading that kind of narrative gets very repetitive for me, and to which I'm like, the only difference is the band name. It's just kind of reading the same story. Mm -hmm. So with Texas is the reason, I wanted to touch on them when I felt it was appropriate. In the Jawbox chapter, I bring up how Jay Robbins is becoming more known for his production skills. And then with Texas is the reason was brought up in the Promise Ring chapter with how the promise ring got into the hands of the guys at Jade Tree because Norman lived with Tim Owen, co-owner of Jade Tree, and that's how they got got together. So, so yeah, it, it really to answer the question of like why doesn't this band receive a full chapter? Even I asked myself the question of why didn't Sensefield get a whole chapter? Well, because I just wanted to have things that were more emblematic in one chapter. And just didn't touch on a lot of other bands, other great bands, but I, I didn't want to write an encyclopedia. And I think whenever there's a book announced or there's even a, a list that goes out of like, what are the top 20, you know, albums, people expect it to be an encyclopedia. And the thing is, you can't ingest an encyclopedia. You have to have something that's a good summary. And if you, you yourself really want to go in deeper, you can do that on your own time or... Nothing's holding you back from writing your own book. Those are, those are, yeah, those are wise words. Well, I think we have, um, we have covered quite a bit here, and uh, I want to let everybody know that they can go to themeparkexperience.com to uh, check out the writings of Mr. Grubbs, and um, you can pick up Post at uh, various locations such as Amazon. And where are some mm -hmm. other places that you can pick up post, Eric? Uh, Barnes and Barnes and Noble, um, and it's just available on pretty much every every kind of place. Um, or hell, if, if you're if you don't have the money for it, just email me and I can send you a PDF. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I mean it's 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 yeah, books out there, and uh, people are still getting into it, and which is great. I will say is that. Since I published it all those years ago, a lot of the bands that I wrote about reunited. Um, then they broke up again. And so it's, it's a little awkward to read about a band that says, yeah, we're never getting back together. And then they got back together. But <laughs> if you want to know why the band broke up again, it all goes back to what <laughs> the research that I found and wrote about in my original book. 
like Sunny Day Real Estate. I'm just going to leave it at that. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, I want to remind everybody uh, to please head on over to our iTunes page. And if you like this episode, be sure to drop some uh, positive feedback for us. And uh, Eric, thanks for joining us. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for having me, guys. Absolutely. So uh, I think we're going to wrap things up. We got a nice long episode, lots of music for people to check out uh, during this one. And um, for Jay, I'm Tim, and we'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Join the conversation about this episode at digmeoutpodcast.com, where you can find links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed as well as links to our request a review and merchandise pages. Mm